Hi everybody, Merry Christmas. Um, we're going to be reading from Luke's Gospel, as Pete mentioned earlier. We're starting in Luke chapter 1 and then reading from verses 67 through to 79. Uh, so Luke chapter 1, 67 through to 79. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Well, good evening. Uh, let me add my welcome to Pete's. If you are new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And we're actually working through four songs in Luke 1 and 2. So last week, we looked at Mary's song, uh, tonight, Zachariah's song. On Christmas Day, on Wednesday, we'll be looking at the angel song from Luke 2. And then on the 29th of December, we'll be looking at Simeon's song. So that's where we are in this little series, considering um, this playlist that Luke offers us in his gospel. So let me pray for us as we come to Zechariah's song that's just been read for us by grace, um, that God might help us as we look at it together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your word you have laid out for us uh, the fulfillment of many promises of the Old Testament as we read this account in Luke 1. And we pray tonight as we come to your word again that we might understand it as your voice speaking to us, your inspired word, living and active. We ask that you might encourage us, and that you might challenge us afresh, that we might hear Zachariah's response to the good news and then reflect on our own. Help us to respond rightly to your word as we share it with others too. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever lost your voice? Have you ever suffered laryngitis or at least a hoarse voice? I think most of us have. Uh, it's an occupational hazard for some people, like teachers that are speaking all day. But what if you're a professional singer and you lose your voice? Now, there is an occupational problem that can lead to concerts being cancelled, thousands of people being upset. Indeed, it can threaten the career of such a person if it's not managed well in the aftermath. Uh, one recent famous example is the British pop singer Adele in 2011. Uh, she was singing on a French radio program and she hemorrhaged her vocal cords. I don't know what that quite means medically, but it wasn't good. And um, it led to her, one of the most powerful young voices at that point in the industry, uh, becoming silent. There was the option, I guess, of uh, not speaking or singing for quite some time and hoping it would heal naturally. But she chose, I guess, what is a more... A delicate operation, a very high-risk medical intervention called mo uh, vocal cord microsurgery. It's an operation where uh, the surgeon 
uh, uses these very miniature uh, scalpels and forceps attached to foot-long poles that they are guided down the throat through cameras to try and excise whatever uh, damaged tissue is robbing the vocal cords of their natural elasticity and the, the voice's natural timbre and range. In her case, it was successful, and it was only a few months later in February of 2012 that she picked up six Grammys, and in her, one of her acceptance speeches that night was mindful of thanking her doctor, Stephen Zeitels, for giving her back her voice. But you see, for years, vocal cord microsurgery had been considered very risky. Um, it had started in the 1990s, and there had been some spectacular failures. Julie Andrews had been operated on in 1997, and her already damaged voice was made worse beyond repair with what happened. But Zytles has been really effective in the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, he has repaired the chords of more than 700 performing singers, including Sam Smith, Lionel Richie, Bono from U2, Cher, Michael Bublé, Keith Urban, Megan Trainer, uh, Celine Dion. It makes you wonder if there's a singer out there that hasn't had surgery on their vocal cords, such as the long list. And all of these people have had to have help because they have abused and overused their uh, voice, the natural talent that God has blessed them with, often having not been trained rightly and have affected themselves badly by the way they practice. But as we come to Zachariah's song in Luke's Christmas playlist, we encounter a man who has lost his voice. But it's not because of overuse of his vocal cords, but rather because of his lack of faith. It's still due to his own fault, his own actions. You see, back in verses 5 to 25 of Luke 1, we get the backstory to Zechariah. Remember, he and his wife Elizabeth were from a priestly line, and Zechariah was actually serving in the temple, and his turn came. And in the temple, he's confronted with the angel Gabriel, who announces to him that he and his elderly wife will be blessed with a son. And this seems so unlikely, unfathomable. It's a bit like Abraham and Sarah's story, I guess, way back in the Old Testament. And so he doubts this statement by the angel and says, how can this be? And this lack of faith is cause for Gabriel to say, look, I stand in the very presence of God's throne room. This will come to pass. And because you have doubted my word, you'll be mute until this reaches fulfillment. And so for the next nine months, Zechariah is unable to speak with plenty of time to reflect on these actions at this point and what was to come with this child that was promised, who they were told by the angel must be named John. The, angel, the birth of his son takes place, but it's not until uh, Zechariah expresses trust in God's plans and actually responds um, to what the angel has said as the neighbours and relatives that have gathered for the birth of this son are all seeking to influence his wife Elizabeth and say, well, he must be named after his father. That was the tradition in the first century. He'd have to be Zachariah, or at least he'd have to be a name that the family had already had. And Elizabeth is insisting on calling this child John. This can't be right. You don't have a John in your family. And so they turn in desperation to Zachariah and say, surely this is not what you're wanting they sign language with him and he asks for parchment and writes down, his name is John. And immediately his voice is opened again. He is able to speak. And so as we come to this song tonight, it's in the aftermath of these events. It's like a damn wall that has burst. And finally, there's this outburst, this statement from Zechariah. And it's a song of praise to God. 
And as we consider this song tonight, I want to ask this question. What is Zachariah's song about and how can we truly sing it? What is Zachariah's song about, firstly? But then how can it be our song? How could we truly sing it as we take in his statement? Well, the first answer to that question, the first part of the question, is that Zachariah's song is all about Jesus. Zachariah's song is about Jesus. Notice again what is recorded in verses 67 to 70. His father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets long ago. Now, you might think it's um, natural, of course, that the song would be out Jesus. Um, this is not a, an interesting first point. Um, but actually, after nine months of silence and the awaiting of the birth of his son, John, when you get to this song, yeah, there's a mention of John towards the end of it, but it's nearly all about the Christ, the Messiah that was promised, and John's part in preparing the way for this one. And like the song from Mary that we considered last week, Zechariah is inspired to utter this hymn of thanksgiving. And it contains both elements of fulfillment as he looks back and thinks of promises that are now coming to pass. But it's also prophetic as it looks into the future because Jesus has not yet been born, although his arrival is imminent. But the main thrust of the song is summarized in verse 68. Notice he's saying that God should be praised for he has visited us and redeemed his people. And the key phrase there um, in the NIV is that he has come or in other um, translations, he has visited. And Zechariah specifies in verse 69 why he believes that redemption has come. And that it's because God, he says, has raised up a horn of salvation. God has now acted and intervened in history to provide salvation for his people. Now just think for a moment. If you were a Jew living in the first century, then your hope of salvation for your nation was often seen in political terms. They had long since been looking for a Messiah or a Christ, an anointed one, a king, who was going to relieve them of the oppression they felt under because of the Roman Empire. And so their minds went in that direction. And as you read this song from Zechariah, there are hints of that need of freedom in verses 71 and 74. But the large focus of this song is actually not about foreign invaders, but it's about their spiritual need, their spiritual foe of sin. And so notice that the true enemies are not foreign invaders. The salvation that was arriving was for the redemption of people that needed spiritual help. Have a look at verse 77. As Zechariah talks about his son's role, John's role in preparing the people for the promised Christ, he says it's all about focusing on giving them a knowledge of salvation that was through the forgiveness of their sins. You notice this? And so a right relationship between nations, between two individuals, can only happen if there's a right relationship between God and a person. That's the first step. There can't be the second without it. Our rebellion against God's rule, which prevents a right relationship with him, has to be repented of. This rebellion that's created a great chasm between people and God needs to be dealt with. And so the emphasis on the song here is in forgiveness of sins, verse 77. It's about personal godliness, righteousness in verse 75. 
It's about God's mercy and his illumination to guide people who are living in darkness into light that they might have peace. And so right at the start of Luke's gospel here, he's making it very clear that the heart of the good news that he's going to be announcing and continuing to explain as the gospel unfolds is about salvation through forgiveness of sins, the redemption of people in spiritual need. And there's so much fulfillment in this, as he alludes to throughout this section, because the arrival of Jesus and John before him to prepare his way has been long promised in the Old Testament leading up to this point. And so looking backwards, notice the reference to the oath he swore to our father Abraham in verse 73. That complements the earlier reference we saw last week in Mary's song, again referencing Abraham. I mean, Abraham, the father of the nation, who had been given these wonderful promises in Genesis 12, that he and then his descendants following him would be a blessing to all nations, not just to the nation of Israel. And of course, those promises in Genesis 12 were then extrapolated or built on in Genesis 15 and then in 17. And notice the focus as they look back, saying that these promises that had started with Abraham are now coming to fulfillment. He's also mentioned the house of David and the servant of David. Um, This is not referring to um, his own family line. We know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were in the Levitical line. That was how he could be part of the priestly family that was serving in the temple. Because those that were in the line of David would ultimately come to the Christ that had been promised. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there was going to be a son of David that would rule forever. And so he's picking up both Abraham, the father of the nation, and the greatest king David through whom the line of the promised Messiah would come. And as he draws these threads together, he's saying, this one who is about to be born is the one we've been waiting for. And you notice... I think that becomes even clearer at the very end of his song in verses 78 and 79, especially verse 79 with these phrases, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now, those phrases should ring a bell for us. They've been repeated in a number of places in the Old Testament, but particularly Isaiah 9 verse 2. It's a passage that we often go to at Christmas and think about the prophesied birth of Jesus. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And of course, that section in Isaiah 9 sort of builds up to a crescendo in verse 6, where we get those well-known phrases. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. So those living in darkness have now received light, the light of this promised child that will come not only to Israelites, but indeed to all people. And I think in this section of uh, his song, there's a focus on Israel. There's less clarity, perhaps, that it's for all people. But we need to remember that Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Greek man, a Greek reader. And as the gospel of Luke unfolds, he makes it clear over and over again that the focus of God's plans are for all people, not simply his chosen old covenant nation of Israel. And so the promised Messiah will come. He'll be from the line of David and he's for all people. Now, as we apply this passage to ourselves, I want to ask you whether you can resonate with this song of Zechariah. I think we know some of these passages well. We've read them perhaps 100 times if we've been a Christian for many years. 
And we can read it, and it can seem a little ho-hum to us. Here is a man that's just bursting with praise after nine months of silence, and he just wants to acknowledge how amazing God's plans are, how they're coming to fulfillment, how his son is going to play a role in preparing the way for this Christ that has been awaited for centuries. And as we hear his song, there is an excitement, I think, to the way he's doing it. There's a pace to it. But so often for ourselves, the question of whether our heart sings with him is less clear. Do you long to praise the Lord? Are you aware if you've placed your trust in Jesus of all that you have in Emmanuel, God with us? Because I want to say to you, I think praise naturally bursts out of you at many other points in your life. If you go to a sporting event and see a team you love and they're doing well and they win the game or whatever, the star player that you love scores a goal or wins a point, then you can't help but just burst out into applause and cheering for them. It's just a natural overflow. Or you go to a musical concert, whether it is that you love um, musical theatre or it's a rock concert or whatever it might be, and you're seeing your favourite artist, Are you ever going to be sitting there at the end of the concert, sitting on your hands and showing no interest or applause or any appreciation for what you've seen and heard? No, it will just burst out of you. Nobody has to tell you, give thanks, praise what has happened before you. How much more should it be true then of our spiritual blessings? Let me pick on myself for a moment. If I'm watching the cricket, which I love, and I know others think it's like watching grass grow, but it's been really good this year. Australia's winning again. Some of the cheating scandals are in the past, and we've got a new star in Manus. And Manus is a Christian, amazingly. He's the only one in the team, I think, South African-born. He's doing brilliantly and scoring all these runs. Well, I can't help but be excited about his achievements. No one has to tell me to be liking him and to applaud his efforts. Or if I'm watching the state of origin and the blues are crushing Queensland, it's a new thing, didn't happen for many years, but you know, it's happening again. It's so exciting if you're a blues supporter, then no one has to tell me to get excited when they're scoring a try or stopping those poor Queenslanders. Praise just bursts forth. I want to say to you, not only is it natural and will you see that at various points in your life, but praise is not only natural, but it's a necessary response to fully enjoy the object or the person that's being praised. Let me say that again. Praise is a natural and a necessary response to fully enjoy the object or person that is being praised. How true of that is that of our salvation in Christ, that God has brought us out of darkness into light through his son Jesus. So the question I think we've got to ask ourselves is, are we bursting with praise like Zachariah is, especially at this time of year, as we think about all the spiritual blessings that have come to us in Christ? This is something far greater than a sporting performance or a musical performance. If you've come to repent of your sin and place your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then the consequences, the eternal consequences of that has been lifted from you. You have an eternal future in heaven. You have every spiritual blessing in the present as God helps you through the gift of his spirit, through the presence of his word, through the opportunity to pray. Well, our hearts should well up with thankfulness every day as we ponder on those eternal truths. But I want to put it to you that so often in the Christian life, believers even can find themselves more often complaining about their lot in life to God than showering him with praise 
Or at best, we're offering faint praise for all these blessings that are flowing to us moment by moment that we're so often not even acknowledging. You know, sadly, we can offer a degree of thanksgiving in life which is in reverse proportion to the amount of blessing that we've received. Don't we see that in our world generally? A man that is hungry or homeless on the street is more thankful for one morsel of food than a rich man is for a heavily laden table. A lonely woman in a nursing home will be more thankful for one visit from one person than a famous young woman at a giant party that's thrown in her honour. Why is it like that? Should it be like that spiritually? Is our thankfulness faint or begrudging almost? We get annoyed, don't we, when we're taken for granted. Let me put it more pointedly for you. What if you had saved somebody's life yesterday and they didn't even acknowledge it? They didn't thank you, they didn't even speak to you, they just ignored you. There was no word of praise, nothing. Wouldn't you be hurt? Wouldn't you think there is something wrong here? You know, in 1860, uh, the worst maritime accident on the Great Lakes area of uh, the United States took place. A steamship named the Lady Elgin uh, was hit by another ship in foggy conditions, only about 10 miles from shore in Lake Michigan. 400 people on board. Nearby in Evanstown, there was a university called the Northwestern University, and a whole bunch of university students happened to be nearby. And they came out to the shore and formed teams, linking arms, trying to save the many people that were floundering in the surf. And one man, Edward Spencer, was quite a good swimmer, had a rope tied to his leg, and he went out about 20 times. He saved 17 people by himself. He was injured at being hit by all the flotsam and jetsam that was in the water. You know, 297 to 400 people perished that day. It's a huge tragedy. About 50 years later, in the early 1900s, the famous preacher R.A. Torrey was speaking at a church in Los Angeles and he was retelling this story as an example. And somebody yelled out to him, Edward Spencer is here in the meeting. Couldn't believe it. Invites the now old man to come up the front and he slowly makes it up onto the stage and he says to him, what do you remember of that fateful day? What is the thing that stands out in your mind? And he said, only this, sir, not one of the 17 people who I rescued thanked me. Now, there's something wrong with the end of that story, isn't there? It could it be that it's like that with us sometimes in terms of our response of thanksgiving and praise to God? Zachariah had nine months to think about what was important to think upon his doubts, his lack of response to God's word. And when he finally has his moment to speak, he's got nothing but praise for God. It's just an outburst that overflows from him. That should be true of every believer, right? Is that true for each one of us tonight? Second part of our question is this. How can we truly sing this song? If Zachariah's song is about Jesus and he's praised to God for the sending of his son, 
then how can we truly sing this song with him? Well, I think the answer is that we have to have God's heart and that we want to share this message, share this Jesus with others. You see, to truly sing this song, you not only need to be thankful for what God has done in your life, but you want others who are in darkness to be drawn into the light by God. It's a a message that you want to declare. You have to have others hear it. This was Zachariah's son's work. Why did John the Baptist come? What was his role? His important work was to prepare the way for people to receive Jesus. To prepare the way. Have a look how his father Zechariah sings about his role in verses 76 and 77. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. John had a powerful and important foundational role He's kind of the final prophet with a capital P. He bridges the Old Testament with the New. He comes and declares for the last time the Messiah is coming and indeed he is now upon us. But I want to point out to you that the message that John would preach is very similar to the commission that Jesus gives all disciples, indeed to the church, at the end of Luke's gospel. Have a look at Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Jesus instructs his disciples... This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't have John's unique role. But we've been entrusted with the task of proclaiming the good news about Jesus as his ambassadors if we've come to faith in him. We have an important role to share this message. It needs to go out. We've been given this wonderful opportunity to tell others about Christ's death and resurrection, which provides a way for their sins to be forgiven. This one who was born came as a rescuer. He came with the plan to save. And as we apply this point to ourselves a little bit further, let me ask you if you not only overflow with praise to God because of Jesus at this time of the year, at all times of the year, but do you long for others to have this knowledge? I mean, do you desire the spread of the light of the gospel into the darkness of our world? Are you longing and praying for the day when specific members of your family or close friends come to place their trust in Jesus? If so, are you intentionally planning towards that? praying that you might use this Christmas season in particular well. Why this season? Well, we all know it. It's one of the few times of the years that Australians will actually slow down and have a conversation if they're just an acquaintance or a work colleague or a neighbour for more than 60 seconds. Everyone's always in a rush of the year. I've got no time to really stop and talk about the deeper things of life. But at Christmas, people have holidays. It's why we do beach mission, because people will actually stop and sit in a tent and try and relax. But they're open to speaking and thinking a little bit more. They've got space to do so. So let me offer you two simple suggestions for this Christmas season. Firstly, 
in your conversations with people, look for the slightest common ground so that you can build a rapport, build a connection so that your conversations might go that little bit deeper with them. I think we've really got to be students of life. So often we can be interested in our specific things. We like to pigeonhole ourselves these days. I like this sport, this music and that and anything else I'm not interested in. And so then if somebody else has got interests other than mine, then I don't really want to connect or I'm not on their wavelength. I want to be interested in everything so that when I speak to that person who has completely different interests and background to me, I've got something to say that I can seek to connect and get into a conversation with them. I mean, why can't I talk about that retired neighbour who seems to be only interested in his investment properties and his financial security? What's stopping me from getting into his mindset so that I might have a conversation and appreciate where he's coming from? That he might be willing to hear from me that I've got an eternal insurance policy that's better than anything you'll ever have. Or what about that young teenage relative that's um, harder to chat to now because they're not wanting to talk much and the conversation is awkward and they're only into that one rap musician or hip-hop player and you don't know anything about them? Well, look, ask them about the lyrics. Isn't it amazing how so many of these songs talk about the deeper issues of life and we can actually draw out what is being said, what they think is so important that this person is saying. So there's huge openings often to having gospel conversations or at least conversations about deeper issues, about what matters in life. Or what about that person from another culture that lives next door that I struggle to speak with, perhaps whose English is not very good, who I feel like there's a hundred cultural barriers and I'm not sure whether I'm putting my foot in and it's very hard to get anywhere. Well, I can work hard to understand their worldview. So they're a Hindu or they're a Buddhist or whatever it might be. I can learn about that. I can engage them. I could cross a hundred cultural barriers in five minutes by offering to do some practical thing for them. I'll bring your bin in when you're away next week. And suddenly, next time we're speaking, they're open to having more of a conversation. It's the small daily things as we just live as believers that can be the moments when God provides us with an opportunity. Now, perhaps as you run into those people, you think, I really have nothing in common and it's such a struggle. But you know, I know somebody at church who is right on their wavelength. That'd be great if I could introduce the two of them. Why not? Here's my next suggestion. Suggestion number two, have a meal. That's why we're encouraging barbecues over January. Second area of connection is so often meals. It's been said for so long that hospitality is such a door into people's lives. But you know, it's something that Aussies are actually struggling with now. We're hopeless at it. We have this belief that we're really good at having people around for a barbecue. It just doesn't happen these days. You know, there was a survey 10 years ago, and the results came out in the Sydney Morning Herald, and it was entitled, Great Australian Barbecue with Friends is Now a Myth. It found that 3% of Australians actually spend time Rather, Australians spend 3% of their time with neighbours or friends entertaining them. 3% of their leisure time is invested in spending time with others. That compared to 20 other OECD countries, and we were the lowest. Turkey in that survey was the highest at 43% of their leisure time spent connecting with friends and neighbours. What do the Turks know that we don't? How's it come to this point? What are we spending our time on then? Well, the same survey said Australians spend 41% of their leisure time watching television or various screens or listening to the radio. 
And the same survey said Australians are happy with this isolation. They're satisfied with their lives. Supposedly, we're not looking for connection. Now, I know that's not true of everyone. Maybe your street's an exception. I hope you're an exception. But it's an ongoing trend. There was another survey just a couple of years ago, a smaller one with a couple of thousand Australians, and it found that one in three people don't know the name of their neighbours and don't care. But one in ten of them have called the police about their neighbours. The survey indicated that single people are the least friendly and interested in meeting their neighbours, and women who are widows over the age of 55 are the friendliest. That seems to fit. Uh, marriage makes a big difference too. Fewer than half of single people in this survey wanted to get to know their neighbours, but 70% of married people claimed that they did. Now, maybe as you hear all those things and the struggle in Australia today, you think, wow, it's going to be hard connecting with friends and neighbours and work colleagues. I don't think so. I think there's a latent desire within Australians to have community. We like to talk about community and mateship all the time. It just seems that we don't actually live it or express it properly. I think if you ask your neighbour around for a barbecue in your place, you'll be the first people that probably ask them in 10 years. And they'll say yes instantly. There's such a need. We can show the initiative as Christians. We can invite people over. We can bridge that cultural, social gap. We've got to buck the trend. And if you're talking with them and they happen to have young children, we'll invite them along on January 18. They can come to our movie afternoon and meet some of the families from our church. We've just got to be looking for the next step, the next little moment, opportunity. And it's not too late to organise a Christmas street party or a New Year's street party. People love these things. We started it five years ago in our street. We've got a small street, it's a cul-de-sac, that makes it easier to do. But we just went around and collected everyone's addresses five years ago with the plan that we would then create some connection and say, let's have a street party. On Monday night, it'll be our fifth one. You know, there was a family that came into our street last year at the start of December. And we invited them, they came along. As Christine was giving out some invites the other day, they were there and they said, oh, we were so looking forward, hoping that something would appear in the mailbox we really enjoyed last year. We want to come and meet the neighbours again. I think there's a longing for people to come along. We haven't got any brilliant plan when we get there. We just meet across the street on our neighbour's lawn, so it doesn't ruin ours, obviously. Um, and we, we just stand and chat there for about four or five hours until everyone gets sick of it and wanders home slowly. But we're building rapport and connection, and maybe it'll have an opening to a gospel conversation. Pray for us that it will. Think about what you might do in your area. Maybe you've already got something like that happening. But these small opportunities to connect can be powerful examples of our desire to sing Zachariah's song. Let me encourage you. Apparently the most famous song on the radio and in shopping centres at Christmas is Mariah Carey saying, all I want for Christmas is you. I think Zachariah's song is slightly better and, and I reckon we could be singing this song with gusto as we really take on board this thankfulness that we should have to God and this desire to hold out the joy we have to others so they may be included. We just want to overflow with all that God has done for us, as Zechariah did after his nine months of silence. And to truly sing this, we've got to find our voice. Look, maybe you find this hard. You feel like you're introverted. Sharing your faith is just um, difficult. You want it to be a no-go zone. Maybe it feels like, for you, you've had laryngitis about your faith for a number of years. 
Let me encourage you to find your voice this Christmas, to take opportunities, to pray that God would provide an opening. It might be the smallest of openings. God can use everything that we offer, every little effort. I think so often we think in our minds that, you know, I have to be Billy Graham, I have to be some brilliant evangelist before I can start chatting to the person next door. You do not. You just need to be prayerful and willing to step out, to use the voice that God has blessed you with, to share something of the joy that was within you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Let me encourage you to find your voice this Christmas. Let me encourage you to be like John the Baptist, to continue that work of preparing the way for people to receive Jesus. God will ultimately do the work of drawing people to himself. Salvation is his work and his alone. But we've been given this wonderful opportunity to be part of it, to be his ambassadors, to hold out this salvation that is through forgiveness of sin. This is what people really need to hear. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our time together tonight and for your word to us. Help us to take on Zachariah's song. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of his words, the desire to give praise to you, for the clarity of his understanding of the role of his son and the need for people to hear about your promised Messiah, your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to have that same heart that you have. For there are so many around us here in Australia living in darkness, and yet the light of the gospel can dawn in their lives as you enable us and work through us. Help us, we pray, to take the opportunities that this Christmas season provides. Help us not to be shy, but to be ready to share the hope that we have. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.